Chapter 5 Independence Day If you don't build your dreams, someone will hire you to help build theirs. Tony Gaskins It didn't take long before Leilani and I sold the El Camino for food money, but we didn't care. Nothing in the world mattered to us except snowboarding and each other. There's no greater feeling of freedom than the one you find at the top of the Rocky Mountains on a bluebird powder day. This lifestyle came at a price, though, so we both took jobs at Breckenridge Ski Resort, which comes with a free season pass, thank you very much. I was a night janitor, which left my days open for snowboarding, and we hitchhiked back and forth over the pass from Alma to Breck daily to work and ride. We had nothing, but this was an awesome time as I was completely free and was following my dream of living to snowboard. After the hitchhiking got old, Leilani talked her grandfather into giving us a 1985 Chevy conversion van. There was one catch, we had to go to Iowa to get it. So we took a god-awful 48-hour Greyhound bus ride to do just that, and then drove it back to Breck. It was worth the trip, since we ended up spending part of the winter living in that van. We pirated our electricity via a 100-foot extension cord plugged into the back of a strip mall attached to a space heater in the van for warmth. The strip mall became our personal trailer park, and we ate burritos from the nearby gas station on the regular. The van smelled like dirty snowboard socks and fast food, but we had each other, and the mountain. We even celebrated Christmas in the van that year, and put up a small fake tree my mom sent us. It was one of those plastic deals, maybe two feet tall at the most, green and plain. No lights and no decorations. But it didn't need them. The tree gave off just the right amount of Christmas spirit all on its own. I still have that tree, in fact, and I display it every year as a reminder of those days. For the next decade, I would snowboard 100 days a year and make friends with lots of like-minded guys and gals who also squeezed every moment they could out of the day riding snowcaps. One of them was Mikey, a professional extreme snowboarder and one of the most beautiful souls you could ever hope to meet. With a permanent shit-eating grin on his face and at 23 years old, he was already a nationally known athlete. We became very good friends. I was living the lifestyle of my dreams, riding, drinking, partying, and shooting pool. As far as I was concerned, life couldn't be better, and I was perfectly happy with the way it was all playing out. Leilani wasn't, only I didn't know it. I thought life was great, and that Leilani and I were the perfect team. In her, I believed I had found my soulmate for life. Then I found out through the bro network that she had cheated on me. The shock of this news was especially severe because it was so completely unexpected. It was a blow second only to Dad's passing. I confronted her and told her to move out. She wanted to stay and make up, but I said hell to the no. My refusal was part pride and part… well, okay, it was all pride, but I knew myself. I wouldn't be able to continue on with her, knowing what she'd done. I would have been incapable of putting it behind me or of ever fully trusting her again. She left town shortly thereafter, moving to Texas and out of my life forever. The funny thing was, she had been the reason I moved to Breckenridge in the first place. She had introduced me to everyone. Now the town was more mine than hers, and I was going to stay. The part she had played in my life had been important and impactful, but it was over, and it was time to make my next move. And move I did, into an apartment with four or five other guys, some of whom I'm still friends with to this day, like Mouse, who was not only quiet as a, but a real stand-up guy who would do anything for his friends and a great snowboarder to boot. Life also moved on, and you know what? It was an amazing time. Life was still good because I was doing what I wanted to do. 
I still hadn't been able to shake the smell of dirty snowboard socks and fast food, however. One scene that took place in that apartment that I'll never forget was when Mikey came over to show me the prototype for a personalized pro-model snowboard that his sponsor had just released in his name. He was so excited that he jumped up and down on the couches and bed with a joy rarely seen. It was a monumental occasion for snowboard bums like ourselves and more than cause to celebrate. The very next day, he was dead, killed in a 300-foot wide avalanche at Arapahoe Basin. He triggered the slide while jumping a steep chute with another snowboarder who survived and was buried under three to four feet of snow for three hours before he was found in his socks. The snowboard and boots had been ripped right off his feet in the descent. That was a very sad time for our tight group of friends, as Mikey was dearly loved by all. At the funeral, we all put little mementos in his casket. When my turn came, I slipped in a small bottle of Jim Beam, since that was our drink together. It was very sad. Still, I couldn't help admiring how he'd lived, fully and for the moment, chasing his dreams to the very end, and how he died doing what he loved, which I believe is the most anyone can ask for. His death also served to strengthen the relationships between our circle of friends. It was kind of like his last gift to us. So again, there was that sun shining in the rain. What is freedom? Mikey's death did not stop me from riding, however. Maybe I felt like I owed it to him to continue to enjoy something we all loved so much. Or maybe I felt it was better to risk death and live life passionately than it was to live a life with a safety net. Either way, I continued snowboarding during the day and working my ass off at night. At this point, you might be wondering what part taking 10 years out of my life to snowboard plays in my success story. You shall see. I took a job at a Mexican restaurant, ironically called Whiskey Creek, first as a dishwasher and later as a line cook. The place was eventually sold to new owners and I was forced to look for other work. Years later, this incident eventually helped me to come to the conclusion that sometimes when a door closes, it's meant to close. You just need to find another door that opens for you, and there will be countless doors to choose from. Sometimes you have to try a few knobs. If you listen hard, you'll hear opportunities knocking from behind many of them, and when you come across one of them, you just have to be brave enough to turn the handle and step through the doorway. I didn't always think this way. When I heard I was going to be out of work, my first thought was, I finally have a good job with people I like, and the business gets sold? Why can't I catch a break? I had yet to understand how the universe worked. But then, opportunity knocked on a new door, and I stepped inside. I was offered a job, as a manager no less, for a liquor store that I frequented. It was called, wait for it, the liquor store. Because I'd been such a regular customer before getting the job, my roommates joked that hiring me to manage a liquor store was like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. As we used to say, you can't drink all day if you don't start early. Considering they drank as much as me, I literally had a running tab there that came right off my paycheck. I joked back that they should be grateful that I would now be coming home smelling like whiskey instead of tacos. Despite the joking, I'd begun thinking more seriously about things like job security, profit margins, and how to bring in more revenue. I just didn't realize it when it began happening. Although I'd found another job I'd liked and was selling a product I greatly admired, I didn't want to be held captive by the decisions of others. This new way of thinking had resulted from my reprioritizing what I wanted most out of life. Up until that point, I wanted freedom, plain and simple, mainly the freedom to snowboard all day. So I just took whatever job I could that had an evening or night shift and allowed me to do so. 
but it had begun to dawn on me that maybe I didn't really have the freedom I thought I had if it depended on my being employed by others in order to keep it. I needed more than freedom. I needed independence, and I had to figure out how to get it. A businessman is born. Interestingly enough, it was at this crossroads in 1996 that I eventually received a $3,000 inheritance from the sale of my dad's business. My dad's concrete company was not a big one, and after paying off all his debts after the sale of the company to the remaining partners, each of us kids ended up with a whopping three grand. I suppose when most people say that they received an inheritance, they aren't talking about an amount as small as $3,000. Still, it was a major windfall for me at the time. It arrived at the most opportune moment, too. And when I thought about how it was money earned with dad's sweat equity, I wanted to be sure that I did something with it that would make him proud. I noticed that the back storage room of the liquor store was not being used, and my wheels started turning. I figured I could make some sort of store out of it, but if so, it had to provide a product or service that Breckenridge either really needed or really wanted, but didn't already have. So I thought about me and my buddies, our zero-fucks lifestyles, and those things that were unavailable in town that we were willing to go out of town to get. Then I had it. Tattoos. Breckenridge never had a tattoo shop. My good buddy Mouse loaned me another three grand to help buy equipment, and after locating and hiring a fellow snowboarder who had some experience with tattoos, I opened up shop. Independent Arts was born in the back storage room of the liquor store on $6,000 and a dream. It was 1996. Although I had some limited business experience in the past, this was my first real business as a sole proprietor. I was very proud of the fact that I had used the money from the sale of my dad's business to start it too. I also learned that there was a thrill in the risk of starting a business venture that was not unlike the thrill I would get snowboarding. Next, I hired another friend, only he had experience with body piercing, and we began to offer that along with the tattoos, as well as body jewelry and branded swag. After about six months, I was able to move the shop to an actual storefront location on Main Street. Business was great. We're talking a gross income of over $100,000 in the first year. I couldn't believe it. With just $6,000 and a dream, I'd built a real, live, and successful business where none had existed before, literally created from the ground up. I felt very accomplished and proud. When my body piercer had to leave town, I had him show me the ropes so that I could take over the position. And I asked that every piercing he offered be done to me. I thought that as the business owner, I needed to put myself in the customer's shoes in order to be sure we were providing the best service we could. I didn't keep any of these piercings long, but I do have a few holes and tattoos left as badges of honor. I also got pretty good at piercing others and had a lot of fun doing it. I ended up performing every body piercing on every customer in the shop for the next three years. I could have lost my shit when my body piercer told me he was leaving. Instead, I took it upon myself to learn a new skill and provide the service myself. If I had known of any other body piercers in the area, I might have hired them. But since I didn't, I took the job upon myself and I'm glad I did. It helped me to cultivate the philosophy that I still hold today. If you're gonna hire someone to do a job for you, you should have knowledge of how to do it yourself. This not only helps to keep you from getting fucked over if that employee leaves, it also makes you a better judge of your employee's abilities and a better and more understanding boss. And maybe most important of all, employees respect a boss who knows their shit. Know your shit. Quitting the liquor store and opening up a tattoo shop was most certainly a leap of faith. Unfortunately, most people will never take a similar leap out of fear. Fear can be paralyzing. 
At its core, fear is uncertainty of the unknown. The opposite of fear is therefore certainty. With that said, there are only two possible options. Stay where you are no matter how shitty and soul-sucking it is, or battle fear. The walls of your comfort zone are lovingly decorated with your lifelong collection of favorite excuses. Jen Sincero The reason most people never get out of their comfort zone is that it feels safe. Here, there are no judgments, no surprises, no fear, and conversely, no reward. I was stuck in my comfort zone for many years, and I can tell you, it sucks. Much like donning your favorite pair of give-up sweatpants on your way to the grocery store, your comfort zone just feels easier. Here, in this reassuring purgatory, there are no losses because bets are never placed. There are no losers because the game is never played. And there are no risks ever taken because it seems far too hazardous to give up the one thing that remains certain, your suffering. The only thing worse than living in a never-ending loop of certainty is being forced to binge-watch 72 consecutive hours of reality television. Unless, of course, you're into that sort of thing. The good shit is just on the other side of the walls of your comfort zone. What about you? Contrary to popular rhetoric, you don't need to convert your passion into your career. Sure, it works for some people, but sometimes putting a dollar sign in front of the thing you love just sucks the joy right out of it. On the other hand, your passion can be a springboard into the career you were really meant to have. For instance, despite my passion for the sport, I never became a professional snowboarder, and independent arts wasn't even a snowboard shop. It did, however, cater to snowboarders and to people who lived the snowboarder, ski bum lifestyle and aesthetic. People, in other words, who were like me. In fact, they were me. I was my own ideal customer. Before answering the questions that follow, make sure you have a notebook or something similar to write your answers down. You'll be brainstorming here. Picture yourself as your own ideal customer. What is it that you love? What is your version of snowboarding, the thing you're most passionate about and build your life around? Write down whatever it is you most enjoy doing, the thing that makes life worth living. Is it an art form, a sport, listening to certain types of music, reading books by a favorite author, binging on a TV show, slip and slide tournaments, listening to podcasts, playing video games, or something completely different? You decide, as long as it's something that brings joy. What are your top priorities? Having fun, looking good, getting healthy, your children, spouse, grandchildren, reading comic books, learning a trade, finding employment? Write whatever is true for you. The things you can't live without are your loved ones, your faith, your favorite sport, music, your favorite podcast, your home routine, the sweater you knitted earlier for your pet ferret. Whatever they are, write them below. What are the sorts of things you most like to buy for fun? What is the thing you will immediately throw down a wad of cash for the minute you see it, as in take my money, because you've got to have it even though it's not a necessity? Finally. Ask yourself if there is any product or service that doesn't presently exist that you wish did because it would satisfy a need or desire that you have. You may have brainstormed your next successful business venture. Take the case of Gela Nash. She loved clothes and looking good. Her priorities were the child she was having with her husband and staying stylish for the length of her pregnancy. The product she wanted but that didn't exist was a decent-looking brand of jeans for pregnant women that looked as good as real designer jeans on non-pregnant women. It was also the non-necessity that she would throw down cash for without a moment's hesitation. Her very strong desire to continue looking on trend drove her to take matters into her own hands. 
Gela began altering her husband's jeans for her own use and managed to make them look so convincingly store-bought that other pregnant women demanded to know where they could get a pair too. Orders started pouring in, and Gela enlisted her best friend and co-worker, Pam Scase Levy, to help her scour thrift stores and alter as many pairs of jeans as they could to meet the demand. Soon, a business and a baby were born, and both were named Travis. But when the clothing line branched out into t-shirts and tracksuits, it was rebranded as the multi-million dollar fashion line, Juicy Couture. And it all started with Gela fulfilling the needs and desires of her ideal customer, herself. In addition to that, Gela was able to step outside her own comfort zone and face the fear of the unknown. I also ended up expanding my business to include clothes. But the venture wouldn't end exactly as Gela's had. Instead, it all came to a crashing halt. It just blew up. It exploded. An interview with Rich Lopp, Law of Attraction teacher, life coach, YouTube influencer, tarot card reader. If you were like some people, you've never really had a dream career. I didn't. You might not have even considered yourself to be particularly talented at anything. Never fear. This book is still for you. Consider the story of Rich Lopp. Ten years ago, he started making YouTube videos that never really went anywhere because, as he puts it, I didn't really have a solid message to send. I didn't have anything that was worth anything. Predictably, his channels went nowhere, and he gave up on them. Looking back on that now, he'll also tell you it was a good thing he didn't find success with them. Why do you say that? I was a drug addict, and I was just young, stupid, wild, and crazy. And there's no way I would have been able to handle it. I wouldn't have been able to handle the money or the notoriety at that time. Weren't you drunk when you made the video that changed your life? Yeah. I made this video about the sign of Aquarius. I was so drunk, I can barely remember making it, let alone uploading it to YouTube. Of course, I forgot all about it. Then about a year and a half later, I'm surfing YouTube, and that video gets recommended to me, and I find out it's got over 20,000 views. Then at around the same time, people started messaging me on Facebook, asking for more content like that, so I started making more videos about astrology. Kinda crazy. Right? What's crazier is that I'd get about 1,000 subscribers before I'd sort of run out of content ideas, so I'd end up taking a break from it again. But one day when I'm bored, I begin reading tarot cards and filming it and loading it onto YouTube. The algorithm picks it up because I have so many subscribers and viewers for my other stuff. It starts recommending my new videos to them, and my channel suddenly takes off like wildfire. It just blew up. It exploded, you know? My goal, I remember saying when I first started reading tarot cards on YouTube, it was September 2018. I said my goal was by Thanksgiving to hopefully have 10,000 subscribers. I was like, man, I'm probably not going to be able to do that. I'm a little stupid. Well, about Thanksgiving, I had 50,000 subscribers. It really took off and blew up almost immediately. And from more of a universal perspective, it was perfect that way. You know, it worked out just perfectly. Well, that all sounds pretty accidental, or like luck. What advice would you give to someone who has tried for years to achieve this kind of success without that luck? I tried making a successful YouTube channel for a decade before having any success. So, although it all sounds sort of overnight, it wasn't. The biggest key to understanding success is that there is no such thing as failure. It's a learning experience, right? So basically, the only people who fail are people who are stuck in the past and turn around and walk away and completely give up. There is really no such thing as failure. If you don't get what you want, if it's not successful right away, 
you learn something. I've reached a point in my life where I see everything that I didn't get as a good thing. And once Rich's channel took off, he found that the care and upkeep of a popular channel like that was a full-time job. But it was one that he enjoyed doing and that he continues to do to this day, making sure to constantly put out quality content and to interact with and serve his customers daily. It was much the same for me. I had never envisioned running my own tattoo and piercing shop, but once I found that I enjoyed it, had an actual knack for it, and could net a nice profit from it to boot, I worked at not only keeping it up, but expanding it. That is, until I lost my main moneymaker.